Hello everyone, it's October 31st, 2023. So ABL Space Systems is preparing for a second launch attempt after a failure back in January. We're going to talk about what caused it and how they fixed it. Then we talked to Daniel Faber and Adam Harris of OrbitFab, a company that refuels satellites. Well, the show's all fueled up, so let's do it and lift off. Welcome to episode 432 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. And Blue Origin has what I call an Instagram-ready mock-up of Blue Origin, or of, uh, of Blue Moon. <laughs> and it's supposed to look like it's got the, like, Kapton-backed Mylar, or like whatever that, the, the gold Mylar is, but it's like a very trendy light gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just you know it's a, it's another mock-up photo shoot is it a slightly different shade of gold than most other spacecraft yeah it's like actual gold color it's like one meeting one uh public relations team meeting away from being rose gold mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah actually you're right i can see it it's very trendy uh before the show we were kind of talking about how a, an easy way to get your name into the news is to put uh you know, presumably like a thousand bucks or whatever into a mock-up, uh, take some photos in front of it. This, this one, they actually had, um, Bill Nelson, uh, standing in front of it with, uh, Jeff Bezos. Uh, and you know, you publish a new mock-up, you change the dimensions of your vehicle a little bit. Uh, you come up with new ideas about the crazy things you're going to do in the future. You know, like once we build this vehicle, we're gonna, you know, solve faster than light travel or, you know, something a little ridiculous. And it's like, oh yeah, there's our industry's news cycle. (laughs) Like (laughs) very cynical conversation happened. Um, but I mean, it is really pretty, you know, bright white and gold. Even changed the, uh. The feather logo and the words blue moon into gold as well. Yeah, I mean, it's good aesthetics, right? Delta V in the chat, I think, would like a space gray version of this. Yeah, it gives me a wedding cake vibes, kind of. Ooh, actually, that's really good. Yeah, like, actually, this shape would be pretty easy to do as a cake. (laughs) Now I just need to get somebody uh, in the next season of Bake Off to do it, right? ABL dusts itself off. Okay, so back in January of this year, right, they had their Flight 1, which uh, didn't uh, make it too far. It had, uh, Something had gone wrong, which I guess at the time they didn't specify. Um, shortly after liftoff, it was something like just after 18, 19 seconds, so somewhere right around there. Yeah. Mm. Um, and we didn't know much more than that. I mean, we knew, we knew that there was fire coming out of places fire should not be coming out of. So what have we found out at this point? <laughs> yeah, so this week, um, the CEO, Harry O'Hanley posted an explanation on a Substack, um, and it was, it was a lot of conversation around the issue, but he also like walked through the steps that they took and, and what they've concluded. Um, it was kind of cool. Cause like he started the description out by saying like, here's what we knew right away. And then like, if you just, you know, put the torn edges of the paper back together, you get this, you know, puzzle and it's pretty obvious the way that this plays out. But uh, finding the root cause, they had initial suspect and what took most of the time, it sounds like, was um, deciding that their initial suspect was the actual cause. So the the root cause was actually uh, a design flaw. Um, Their launch mount, which they call uh, GS0, Right, the rocket is RS1, the launch platform is GS0, ground support zero. I think it's kind of nice that they're zero indexed. Um, I think uh, SpaceX also calls um, their launch platform stage zero or something like that. 
or some part of the ground support. So anyway, the launch mount was designed to fit in a single shipping container fully assembled. So they arrive on site, they open the container and, you know, wheel the thing out and you're good to go. And the problem with this is that it creates a very, very compact piece of equipment. And so when they lean it up vertical, the rocket's very close to the ground. The bottom edge of the rocket and its distance from the ground is basically the length of one shipping container minus the length of the rocket. That's the clearance you have off the ground. Um, maybe if you you know ship it with the the pneumatic tires empty and then you pump them up when you get there, maybe you can buy yourself an extra couple inches. <laughs> like it's it's really it's very. I'm joking. It doesn't have pneumatic tires like that. But you know it's it's very close to the ground because of this design. And what happened is when they went to launch their exhaust flow out from under the rocket was restricted. And so instead of all the, the exhaust getting blown out through this ramp, a lot of it wound up recirculating, or at least enough of it wound up recirculating underneath the rocket. And, you know, it's hot gas. They actually exceeded the temperatures and pressures that they had designed the heat shield to sustain. So like, that's bad enough, but they also burned through the heat shield on the rocket. And so that fire that we saw in the engine compartment was exactly what it seemed like. It was burned through from reflected heat. Um, I don't think that we came to that conclusion on this show. I don't want to claim that. No, we, <laughs> but- we, we've talked about reflections for these small rockets before on the pad, but I don't think it was for this particular launch an anomaly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that fire burned through some wire harnessing and the uh, ensuing power loss uh, caused the the whole rocket to shut down and their propellant valves fail shut, which is the right way to do it. And so when there's no power, there's no fuel. And so the engine starved and the thing fell back down to the ground. So O'Hanley's post also mentioned uh, what they're doing to fix it. They've actually gone and doubled the ramp inside, like doubled its height. And it looks like they've actually scaled it out to be a little wider as well. The result is that the launch mount no longer ships in a single shipping container, which is like a really cool, like badge of honor, but ultimately not that important when it really comes down to it. Uh, So it ships in three different pieces. I'm assuming that's two, two containers, um, one with two pieces, one with one. But when they get to their location, they bolt together and O'Hanley says that they can do it in a couple of shifts. So pretty quickly, not the same as pulling this thing straight out in, I don't know, maybe a single shift. I don't, I don't think they've said, but like, you know, it, it's going to take some work. Uh, but yeah, you can just pull it out and bolt it together. You're good to go. Last week, we almost talked about um, a thing that is now confirmed to be a fitment rehearsal. Um, They bolted their new rocket into their new launch platform uh, at their facility in Santa Clara, in Southern California at any rate. And we had seen some photos on uh, satellite imagery and I don't think we actually talked about it on the show last week, right? No, we no, almost did, we and then we didn't. I think it made the cutting room floor. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So it was pretty cool because, like, the community saw it and pointed it out, and there just wasn't enough really to talk about because we're like, it looks like a fitment test. Okay, great. What are we going to say about it on the show? And so that's what that was. They confirmed that their new design works, um, and now they are ramping up for their return to flight. What's really cool is that they had planned 
to do at least one more launch of RS1 in the block one configuration. And now they're jumping straight to their block two configuration. So block two is a significant improvement on block one. It has 20% higher thrust, 20% more propellant. The uh, stage one aft module is actually detachable. Um, and then they're updating their engines and switching to a lightweight uh, tank. And um, the blog post has got a lot of uh, really good photos uh, and some good descriptions to to dig through. Um, but the detachable aft module, uh, it gives you a really interesting view of the engine compartment because now you can see it from the top where normally it's blocked by uh, a giant fuel tank. And then I'm sure that has uh, maintenance uh, benefits as well. But yeah, it's it's uh, they're packing it up now. I think they're doing one more uh, assembly test uh, before it actually ships all the way to Alaska, but it'll be there soonish. Um, they aren't being super specific about when they plan to launch again, which is smart. But um, O'Hanley's post says we'll get to block to six years into our project or six years into our program, and doing the math, that seems to mean that they're going to launch by the end of the year or early next year. It is good to see companies like go through these issues. I mean, it's, it sucks, right? But like, it's fun from an engineering standpoint to see the, the solutions to problems. And it's also really cool to see them like getting close to launching again. Like it seems like they are, you know, very close to having pulled through and like gotten past this issue. Um, and yeah, so we'll, we'll see. Chris in the chat says it's schadenfreude. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's part of my enjoyment, but I don't know, maybe it is. Um, I, I have the positive version of schadenfreude when I hear about people fixing mistakes. Like that's why I love watching, um, BPS space. Cause like it's all fixes. Like I, I love all those like manufacturing, like, you know, hobbyist manufacturing design kind of stuff. Like it's just, it's a lot of fun. All right, so just two short and sweets this week again. And Dennis, what is he first? NASA struggles to open asteroid sample container. After grabbing a sample of the asteroid Bennu, the OSIRIS-REx mission returned its sample capsule to Earth last month, bringing the largest asteroid sample ever to this planet. Analyses have already begun on the 70.3 grams of regolith that lies outside the sample collector's head, TAGSAM, which alone is greater than the 60 grams hoped for by mission planners. NASA has, however, run into a snag opening TAGSAM to access the bulk of the sample, with two of the 35 fasteners unable to be removed with current tools in the OSIRIS-REx glove box. The team is currently developing new tools and procedures to enable access while preserving the pristine nature of the sample. And then next up, Rocket Lab to return. Rocket Lab has received authorization from the FAA to resume flights of Electron before the end of the year. The cause of the recent mission failure in September is still under review, though Rocket Lab is confident that it will be completed in the coming weeks. No details regarding the mishap have been disclosed, though Rocket Lab did suggest that a chain of complex events led to the failure of its upper stage. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a couple things to talk about. Uh, ben, what's the first thing? Yeah, actually, the, the first two things are things that I found online this week. It's so rare that I like actually see space news during the week that I care about. Um, like, mm -hmm. it's usually like in preparing for the show, I actually like actively go and reach out and look at all my sources. And this week, I came across two things that 
um, are quite fun. So the first one is called Canapé. It is a ship that is uh, specially like or specifically designed and manufactured to cart Ariane 6 components um, around the world. Um, during its like nominal mission, it will pick up a couple of different parts um, from different ports in Europe. Um, so the uh, fairings are manufactured in a different place than the engines in the core stage. And it will pick them up and transport them to French Guiana. And what's really cool, I mean, first off, the ship looks pretty. It's, you know, basically a cargo ship, um, but it kind of has the sleek lines of a cruise ship. In some way, yeah. it kind of looks like a cruise ship. But what's really neat is that this is uh, the first um, hybrid and like cargo ship that's actually going to be used in uh, it's actual application, not just like a demo. This is like an actual cargo ship and hybrid means that it runs on diesel, but it also runs on the power of the wind. So it's actually a sailboat. And what's really cool is that it has, um, these four vertical wings. They're actually called wing sails and they look like, uh, a chunky, very straight, like not tapered at all version of an airplane wing. They even have um, a flap. I don't know if this <laughs> if this counts as an aileron, um, <laughs> but it's got, you know, it's like two sections. One is fixed, one can flap relative to it, and then the whole thing can rotate. And there are four of these giant pillars sticking up out of the sides of the ship, like the, you know, the sides of a truck, a pickup bed is what it looks like. And they aren't generating electricity. They are being set uh, so that the wind flows over them and pushes the vehicle along like it is a true sailboat. So when the Mastodon posted, it says that these are significantly more powerful than conventional sails. So does that mean that like, let's say you didn't have a diesel engine and you just wanted to build a sailboat, it would be better to build one with these on it, which is to say, is this the future of sailing technology? Well, I mean, yeah, it depends on what you mean by better, right? It depends on your application. These are significantly heavier than traditional sails. So for, for a small boat, yeah, maybe there's a version of this that works, but really traditional sails are, are, are really, really good at what they do. Delta V in the chat says you can't take them down or reef them. I believe that's incorrect. I believe you can reef them. Um, I think that's what the, the flap is for, to spoil them. But either way, you can point them directly into the wind and it, it, they don't really have an effect um, because, because they're actuate, like they're on rotating mounts. So you can point them exactly in the direction you want and you can control that by a computer and they don't flap and like, you, you have a lot more control over them than you would a traditional sale. Okay, so the next thing is um, like public outreach, but it's really fun. Uh, send your name to Europa. There are a lot of space missions that have put uh, names and or small messages on, you know, a flash memory card and sent them to Mars or whatever. Uh, Europa Clipper is actually doing an engraved plate with names um, and... I signed up as soon as I thought that the, <laughs> that the registration was open. Um, I don't know when the deadline is. 
Um, but I'm assuming we've got a decent amount of time. Uh, but if you go to europa.nasa.gov slash message in a bottle with hyphens in between, we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, you can get your name engraved on this plate and send it off to Jupiter as well. I, I really like this. It's like one of the dumbest non-consequential things you can do in space, but like, it's hard to argue with the fact that buttons you pressed on your computer are changing the shape of one very small part of a spacecraft. Uh, and then the, the third thing, this popped up in our discord. I didn't find it, uh, organically, but it's very good. Uh, Mike Stewart, who is in the chat, uh, almost every week and we've, he's been on the show. Like if you don't recognize his name, uh, I'm sorry, because he is one of the, uh, people who works on archiving Apollo software and, in this case, fabricating uh, Apollo-adjacent hardware. Um, he's been posting photos of this project in our Discord for a while, and it's been finished for a while, and now it has a full-on video on the Curious Mark channel um, on YouTube, which is like a really good demonstration of, of what Mike took so long to carefully design and build. It is a core rope memory reader. So... Um, the Apollo AGC uh, had volatile memory and it had permanent memory for like its its program, like the, the binary compiled program that it ran. And they were able to uh, go pull some software off of, I think, the one in the Smithsonian. Like they were able to extract the program that was on there all these years later, like it's still good. Um, and so the video talks about Mike's hardware and the techniques that are needed to read, uh, uh, core root memory. And, uh, there's some very good shots of a very low populated board. Like he just had so much room to work with. So he just dropped all those components in there. Uh, there's an FPGA, uh, that actually like does the voltage curves to actually activate each of these cores. And, um, yeah, it's a really good video, um, about hardware that like, I've been lucky enough to get to see everybody in the discord has been lucky enough to get to see little pieces as it's been going along. Um, and it has officially done its job. Very, very cool. And then finally, we have a correction burn um, from Aaron Saudi on our Discord um, in the last episode. I'm going to read this because I got it wrong. I mistakenly said that uh, the Super Dracos on Crew Dragon are used for the big burns on orbit. That's not true. They're used for abort, and they have been they've been suggested. Uh, to use to do reboosts on station. Uh, but as far as I know, they haven't actually done that. Um, and that's like one little slip that I made, but then Aaron made the correction because I said, like, there are a lot of engines for the abort, uh, on, um, Gaganyan. And I was like, yeah, it seems like a lot of engines when you compare it to, uh, the four super Draco thrusters, it's actually eight, but we're going to say it's four. Cause they act, they, throttle the same they're the same engine but aaron goes on to point out that there are 18 of the not super dracos uh that actually are used for like the rcs and all their orbit changes are done with those so when i said only four i meant like only four for abort but like there was enough mistake after that that it all came out as a very poor explanation of how the crew dragon works so mea culpa thank you aaron for pointing that out we got it straightened up 
and we've reached the interview segment. Today we have with us Daniel Favor, CEO, and Adam Harris, CCO of OrbitFab. Uh, good morning, guys. How you doing? Morning. Great to be here. Good to be here. So, right. So you guys, uh, first off, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. OrbitFab is, is a really cool company, and it's one of the companies that is exciting, but I'm not 100% sure that everybody listening is going to know uh, what OrbitFab does. And sorry to uh, call you guys out, but I think you kind of shot yourself in the foot because when I first heard of OrbitFab a couple of years ago, I thought that you guys were doing like 3D printing on orbit. Is that like, how did you get to the name OrbitFab? Uh, and were you guys ever looking at doing fabrication in space and then retargeted? Like what, what's the history there? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah. exactly what happened. Okay. <laughs> uh, we were looking at a, a few business models when we started off and one of them was manufacturing semiconductors in space, thus the fab. But um, we found that that was a really hard business to get into. It was a smaller market. It was just very, very complicated. At the same time, we're talking to friends in the space industry and learned how much they valued extra fuel in orbit. An extra kilogram of fuel could get them sometimes more than a million dollars of extra revenue. Uh, that blew my mind. We heard that over and over again. So no, OrbitFab, we're the gas stations in space company. We're refueling satellites. It's awesome. And, you know, I, I feel like there are a lot of people out there who say that they want to do on-orbit servicing and refueling and all this stuff. I feel like there are so many companies that I'm just like, yeah, yeah, you know, show us. Like, it, it's one thing to say it, uh, but, you know, you're you're just talking about it. But OrbitFab, actually, I, I think you guys have done more work towards actual on-orbit refueling um, than I, th I think anybody else. Can we start by talking about FURFI? Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, that's right. When we started the company and five years ago now, we were thinking how, what is the most important thing to work on first? And, and we thought you know, we, we need to go out and talk to more of the customers and really understand what, what do they want? What is a product? Right? How do they want it delivered? What systems are, are still needed? What do they have? All those kinds of questions. But we also ran into an opportunity with the International Space Station National Lab. And ISSNL is, a, is funded in parallel to NASA by Congress, uh, but it has a lot of the launch mass allocation, a lot of the astronaut time to do science and commercialization on the space station. And they offered to help us with a, with a launch um, it, it, as we were you know, working on clearly a, a commercialization of the space economy. And so we were able to fly two... Uh, fuel tanker test beds to the International Space Station. Uh, we called the mission FURFI, which is a uh, an Australian name for a water tank, uh, actually. But uh, yeah, great little mission testing interfaces, uh, testing pumps. We actually were able to pump water back and forth in, in zero gravity and then pump it into the International Space Station. So we became the first private company to resupply the space station with water. That was such a great tagline, right? But it, it was like, at the tail end of the of the mission, was that an optional like an optional thing when you went up? Did you know if you were going to be able to transfer water into the and it was a, the potable water cistern too? I believe that's right. Yeah, we um, we went up with that plan. We our thinking was pretty straightforward. We're going to be sending up a few gallons of water to the space station. It seems like a waste to bring it back down. Uh, yeah. Especially when our whole mission is to to make things you know, more efficient from a logistics perspective, and so we talked with the uh, the ISS National Lab. We talked with NASA and said, you know, our stretch goal is to deliver water for you. And 
that wasn't part of the standard operating procedure. They, <laughs> they have their own path to get water to the space station. So you, you can imagine a, a few people looked at us and said, can you really do that? Like, well, physics doesn't say we can't. So does your bureaucracy let us do that? And <laughs> they had to agree that it did and make it happen. And to the to their credit, it was it was not straightforward in some ways. They, they weren't actually sure what the valve was on the space station and had to go get an astronaut to go and have a look um, because it's been up there for 20 years now. It was designed 30 or 40 years ago. So, yeah, they, they checked what the valves were. They, they uh, sent us a valve that we could put onto our plumbing so it would, it would plug into the space station. Uh, they made sure we did all the um, safety checks. It had to be very, very reliable. We don't want to overpressurize their water system and make it spring a leak. But we, we jumped through all of those hoops, um, did that in, in four and a half months to get that payload qualified for the space station. NASA originally told us to expect it to take 24 months, but um, we had a launch coming up and we had to move quickly and we convinced them that what we had was very safe and, uh, and met all of the requirements. So it was crew rated for a NASA launch in four months. And, you know, just, just the fact that you were shipping water up is, is like right there. That's a bunch of qualifications you have to go through because they don't want, you know, they're a, like a water tank overpressurizing and exploding. And that's before you're even trying to interface with their system. So like, like it, it sounds like you guys had more hoops to jump through than you really expected, but it sounds like the motivation was there because it's just such a cool thing to be able to go and do uh, cool, you know, for space nerds like us, but cool for uh, in a, the business word for whatever cool is like to show, <laughs> Hey, look, we, we actually have this capability. Uh, we can get this turned around. Is, is all that, reasonable to to say yeah it's it's actually um even more than just overpressurizing the water bus if you have water in space uh, because there's no gravity it doesn't drain away and so you can risk drowning an astronaut if you have a gallon of water and yeah nasa is very sensitive about this they have a very thick book of of sort of rules and design guidelines and things you have to comply with um and so yeah it, it absolutely had to meet all of those requirements. This is not something to mess around with. Uh, but our motivation was to go as quickly as possible. Uh, as a startup company, we need to figure out our market, figure out uh, uh, how things are going to work, our technology, and also impress investors so that we could get more money and get to the next step. And so moving fast was very important for us. And yeah, thankfully with with NASA and ISS National Lab, we were able to to do that. No, oh, that's awesome. I when I think of NASA, I don't really think of you know moving fast, and so I'm very <laughs> happy to hear that they were uh, being kind of uh, flexible and adaptive to you know the fact that if y'all could prove that you could get the capability and get that water there safely within you know to be able to go through all the regulations and whatnot in just four months, that's that's pretty heartening to hear. <laughs> yeah, the, the trick to doing it was. Um to take some of the risk on the company. So for example, we, when, we were, when we were certain that we had a design that would work, we knew that we had to pass it by NASA and get their approval. We went ahead and built it as quickly as we could, taking on the risk that if NASA said they didn't like them that way what we'd done it, we would have to start again. But we felt confident that we'd understood what NASA had said. We'd, we'd built you know, good working relationships, really good working relationships with them. And they were happy that if, if they were convinced it was good to fly, we didn't have to go in a sequential order. We just had to end up in the right state. So we took on the risk that we would have been delayed by having to restart if we got something wrong. And NASA was prepared to say, Look, if you get it right, we can fly it but you've got to get it right. So this mission was two separate pieces of equipment, a tanker 
and like a receiver, right? And every time we've said flexible in terms of uh, business operations or, or manufacturing practices, I've just been on the edge of my tongue. I've been like flex tank. There's a there's a pun there, uh, flex tank. And so your your receiver was actually a, a flexible. Um, expandable container. What was the other half of the experiment called? I haven't been able to find it. Yeah, we, we just called the whole experiment Furfy. Uh, and I guess the there was a rigid tank and a flexible tank. Oh. Uh, so the rigid tank had, had three gallons of water in it. Uh, the flexible tank was an inflatable type tank. So our vision of the, the future industry uh, is one in which satellites are, are refueled in orbit. But there's also the possibility that they could launch with no fuel in their tank. Uh, that would make it a lot lighter to launch the expensive payload while we try to run very efficient logistics to get the, the fuel to orbit so that it's cheaper to do it that way. But you don't want to launch with a big empty tank because not only is mass launching to orbit expensive, but volume is often the constraint. And so if you could launch a stowed tank and then effectively inflate that tank when you fill it with fuel, that would be advantageous. Uh, so we had this opportunity, decided, well, why would we launch an empty tank? Let's launch uh, a stowed tank. So that's what we did. So that was an inflatable tank technology. And is that a silicon material? It's uh, something yeah, very similar to uh, to what you might think of as silicon, but uh, very careful materials choices to be compatible with you know, both the International Space Station water bus, the water that was in it, uh, but also we were testing some of the materials that we want to use for holding more aggressive propellants in the future. So there's a lot of sort of materials tech and decisions that went into that uh, that choice. And like, how, how do you feel about the temperature requirements? Like, I mean, I, I have plenty of, uh, obviously, lower uh, material science, like, uh, complexity, but I've got a ton of like silicon, like cookware items that tear and, you know, they, they're really good when they first start out, but they wind up getting little nicks and dings. Like how do you see a, uh, a flexible fuel tank operating over the long term? Yeah. The, these materials are, are pretty good with that. And of course we keep that in mind and it's a, it's a multi-layered system. So there's a, we call it an abrasion layer on the outside to make sure that it doesn't get uh, scuffed and punctured. The, the liquid layer that's uh, that's on the insides. Um, so careful design, careful materials choice. Uh, one of the things though that we're more interested and more worried about is if you have an inflatable tank, a flexible tank, and you try to control the pointing of a spacecraft, mm. then you could end up oscillating and, and wobbling backwards and forwards. So a lot of the tests we did on the space station, we had the astronaut spin it or turn it in a certain direction and then rapidly turn it in the other direction so that we could look at those uh, at those dynamics of so recording all of that movement with accelerometers and cameras to be able to match our model of what the dynamics of a flexible tank would look like so that we can put it into a control system and know that we're going to be able to point correctly. Yeah. Are you able to integrate like slosh plates or something that like a flexible version of that? Yeah, we didn't in this design, but we actually patented a number of novel internal slosh control devices for uh, for flexible tanks. So we have had those ideas and started working on some of them. But on this experiment, this first one, we, we weren't able to test everything all at once, that's for sure. So if it's a flex tank that's supposed to reduce space that's taken up, does this mean that it has to expand like kind of like outward into or like away from the vehicle? It kind of sticks out because otherwise it wouldn't necessarily save space if it was internal, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So this configuration was designed to fit into a two-unit CubeSat volume. Uh, a, a unit in CubeSats is uh, 
uh, about 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So it's designed to fit into, into two of those, uh, 10 by 10 by 20 centimeters, uh, and then expand out to have a capacity of 10 liters. So from effectively two liters to 10 liters um, ratio. As you get to bigger tanks, the ratios get much better, but this is a, a good enough uh, size to try. Uh, one of the other applications for these tanks is going to be when we have asteroid or moon mining and people are pulling a lot of liquids, you know, water and, and things like that out of the moon or asteroids, we'll need somewhere to put that water. We need some big tanks and these kind of uh, flexible or inflatable tanks are a great way to do that too. So we hope that they'll find an application in that area and it might be another 10 years or more, but, uh, but that one's quite interesting too. So that's that's the flex tank, like that's the the novel water balloon in space. But the rigid tank wasn't boring either, right? You had a, a rigid tank that you were pumping water out of in zero G, which is kind of a feat. Like we've talked about a lot of on this show, we've talked about a lot of different methods for doing this, um, and it's always difficult and weird and involves odd material choices. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about your the, the rigid tank and how your transfer operations went and you know especially the uh, that final transfer operation? Yes, the, the rigid tank had uh, in fact both the rigid and the flexible tank had pumps to move fuel back and forth mm. um, and that gave it some redundancy. So that could both, suck fuel out of the other tank or, or push fuel into the other tank. Uh, and we ended up using that that capability, that redundancy. We were also testing on the uh, rigid tank uh, some uh, electro-permanent magnet type interfaces. We needed to know what the best gas cap design would be. Like there, there was no gas cap for satellites when we started. A refueling interface to be able to transfer high-pressure propellants reliably, that, that wasn't something that satellites had before. And so we wanted to test various connection technologies. So we tested a bayonet and we tested this magnetic uh, connection. And, and that was important to test as well. In, in the end, we decided neither of those was sufficiently robust or um, you know, the right way to go. And we developed a, uh, a sort of four-fingered robotic claw, if you like, that we call GRIP. And uh, that interface uh, was, was very much informed by the work that we did on the International Space Station. Yeah. So like one of the things that we love talking about on the show is failures just because they teach us things. And so if you don't want to talk about this, you, you absolutely don't have to. But I was wondering if you'd be interested in talking about uh, your pump faults. And then I think you also had some electrical design issues that came up. Yeah, but both of those were effectively the same thing. So we we were moving quickly. We we put all of this together and got it all thoroughly tested. Um, but we'd also built in redundancy at a lot of levels. And I mentioned we had we had two pumps, one on each of the of the systems. Uh, we actually had a um, electrical short that happened on orbit. So the the electronics on one of the units was resetting, and we we didn't know why. We weren't sure if if the pump was getting turned on and overloading the the electronics or, or what was happening. But we were we were on the call with the astronauts on the space station as they're trying to work through all of these systems, we're able to debug it in real time, um, get a lot of data, then think about what was happening, come back the next day. Uh, we had a few more hours and uh, and realized, yeah, one, one of the two systems uh, had an electrical line where the insulation on one of the connections must have worn out during the launch. And so it was shorted against the, the bus. And these are little, very low voltage. They run off batteries, um, off a, a few uh, double A batteries, so it it wasn't wasn't high power. It was never never dangerous, 
but uh, but it did mean that the system was resetting. And we were able to achieve the mission by not using that pump, but use the other one to do both the uh, you know, pushing fuel and pulling fuel. And so we accomplished everything that we needed thanks to the help of the astronauts and uh, you know a bit of quick thinking but also the redundancy that the engineers had built into that design. Yeah. I mean, that that's a great lesson learned. And like, that's, that's a really handy lesson to learn because like, if your pump had failed, <laughs> I was, I was like a little worried that like, you know, pump failures really would set you back, but like, yeah, insulation wearing off, like, yeah, that's something that happens. That's not a big deal. Yeah. We, we were super happy with that pump. We it's, it's now the same pump that we're flying on our, uh, on, on our, our fuel delivery systems. Is this a pump that you've, designed in-house or is it a COTS product? No, it's a, it's a COTS product. Uh, the one that we had was a you know the water variant and it's operating inside the space station. So it didn't need to be vacuum compatible, but the manufacturer makes a uh, a vacuum compatible version, which is great. I vacuum for the outside, not the fluids on the inside. Right. But, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, there's, there's differences you want for that. So so they have a flight, flight version of that pump too. What, what are the requirements that you guys need in a pump? Like, do you need to have, I mean, I'm assuming you need to have fairly precise like flow control. Do you also need like flow measurement or is that another part of the system? Uh, that can be another part of the system or it can be the, the same part of the system. In this case, we get a coarse flow measurement out of the pump, uh, which is a nice backup to have to to any other flow measurement systems. But now the, the main requirements of the pump are that it can go in, in both directions for that redundancy, right? We want to be able to push and pull fuel uh, and that it has to, you know, there has to be a path in the case where we went to the space station, we really wanted to have a path to a, uh, a space compatible, a vacuum compatible pump, not just something that, that we would say, well, this is a great tech. Now we have to make that pump flight worthy of you know, flight, uh, flight qualification. So that path to flight was the other really important thing for us. Okay. So now we're all like on our end, we're really excited to move on to talk about Rafty, which is the rapidly attachable fluid transfer interface. It's an open standard for transferring fuel on orbit. Um, and I'm sure that Rafty is your absolute pride and joy, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what makes Rafty interesting? Like, why is this something that we care about talking about? So as I mentioned, when we started, there was no gas cap for satellites. There's no fueling port that satellites were taking up regularly. Um, we looked at uh, what NASA was building, and, and NASA have uh, have a project to to make a, a fueling port. It makes assumptions that are very valid for NASA that that everyone will have a, a very high precise robot arm and uh, and various things like that. We took a very different approach. We we wanted a low cost refueling architecture. And part of low cost was to take the robot arms off the servicing vehicle entirely and just effectively drive the satellite in until it's, it can make contact and, uh, and grab onto the fueling port. And so, you know, maybe it's a, a slightly more difficult problem to solve on our side, but much easier on the customer side. And once solved, produces a lower cost refueling architecture. So we set about talking with dozens of companies and stakeholders uh, about, and, and government organizations about what they might need from a fueling port. And we did the tests on the space station with the different technologies I mentioned, magnetic and, and bayonet fittings and things, and came away with some ideas. So I did a, a big study on that and developed the rapidly attachable fluid transfer uh, interface. We, we developed Rafty uh, as, a, as the passive side uh, of that. It really is the, the gas cap for satellites. And, and we set out to, to build that and then to fly it as quickly as we could. We wanted to test it in orbit. But just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, 
we wanted to test it at the launch site because when there are people around and you're passing fuels, and some of the fuels are high pressure, some of them are toxic. Uh, when you're passing those fuels, you don't want to expose the, the people, right? It has to be safe. So the range safety is usually the driving requirements on the on the fueling port, definitely from a safety perspective. And so we, we wanted to put it through those paces as well. So once we were, we were funded, we immediately uh, turned around and flew that port to space uh, and then offered it to NASA and, and you know, various government agencies and companies and said, Look, here you go, it's got flight heritage, it worked, it got rave reviews and the ground fueling. Um, you know, this is ready to go. Why don't you Why don't you put this on every satellite? Uh, their response was pretty interesting. They, they basically laughed at us and said, uh, look, here's a long list of things you didn't think about that our missions care about. And they completely shredded us. It was fantastic. It was our best day because that list of requirements is really hard to get. Until we'd flown it, they didn't think we were important enough to waste time on, right? How do you get their attention? How do you get them to spend hours, maybe days, thinking about all the things that might go wrong in a fueling interface in orbit. And they came back with this list and we were able to turn around within a couple of months and say, all right, we've redesigned this and it now meets everything on your list. And they were quite shocked because nothing else on the market did that. And so that then we turned skeptics into champions and we've seen a lot of, of interest and in now uptake of the, uh, uh, of this rafty fuel import now. So can you give us like an idea of what some of those requirements are that you didn't think about? Yeah, the, the, a lot of it was around um, how the seals work, the number of seals. The very first design had O-rings exposed on the surface, uh, exposed to sort of radiation and, and vacuum of space. And they were, they were worried about that, exposed to micrometeorite. Uh, and you know, tiny particles traveling at high velocity can leave little pits in the surface. Those, those kind of things they're worried about. So we, we went away from face seals um, and we looked at various different sealing systems from uh, you know, various types of O-rings to energized seals, which are sort of a Teflon ring with, an, with a spring inside, inside the O-ring, if you like, that pushes it out. Yeah, a bunch of different things that we incorporated in that. Uh, the various alignment features and how to make sure that uh, alignment was guaranteed and, and that we have the widest capture, uh, widest possible capture envelope so that it's easier for the rendezvous docking to occur. There, there were a lot of other things about uh, almost every aspect of that design. And when we got that review back, and we, we'd already, through that experience, I did, through our experience of flying it, identified more than half of the things on that list. So we were prepared to do uh, a redesign already and had things re uh, ready to go. But getting the full list from the government uh, and and the, the companies that looked at that was was so valuable. Yeah, it's I, I love standard documents. For some reason, standards just make me happy. Um, and so you guys have a, a user guide up and it talks about how you implement your interface. And honestly, it is one of the most beautiful user guides I've ever seen. Um, whoever is on your art team deserves a pay raise because it's it looks so good. But like that end of, um, of the Rafty like service device is really boring because really what it comes down to is screw this onto the side of your spacecraft, make sure there's nothing around it. Remember to plug in the two ends and you're good to go. And like that, that's a fantastic type of boring, right? Um, so like I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about some of the solutions that you guys came up with. Um, 
so when, when you're talking about alignment, you're talking about like once these two vehicles are touching, right? We're not even talking about the rendezvous and proximity operation stuff, which is also part of the Rafty um, standard. So like, yeah, how, how do you do that alignment? What kind of uh, problems did you encounter that, you know, your first two solutions didn't work and it took, you know, a, a new way of thinking about things? Well, the interesting thing is that the first solution did work, but oh well for, for alignment. But I'm sure not every single first solution worked, right? I mean, maybe it did. Like I don't want to, I don't want to put you know dirt on your name or anything. But no, you're right. We we did a lot of prototyping, um, and uh, but but by the time that we flew that, it it worked quite well. But the um, the thing was, our customers were looking at different missions, right? They had different scenarios in mind, uh, and that's that's what was important to capture. Uh, and things that, that we we probably would have taken a while to to get around to thinking about. Like right? we would have had to fly missions and say, "Hmm, this is this is now a problem." Having all of that customer input at the beginning was was really what was so important. Uh, one of the one of the other things the fuel import can be used for, and you mentioned it's it's designed to be easy to integrate. We tried to take all of the impact on the client satellite off of that and and solve that on our on our side, and so. One thing that you can you can use the fueling port for is to fill up the satellite on the ground before it launches. Everyone has to have a little valve now to fill fill the tank and to drain the tank to test it and, and that kind of thing. They're called fill and drain valves. Um, the rafty contains two valves: one for propellant and one for uh, a blowdown gas. Often they use a gas to, to push it out, or they have a, a purge gas or something. So it's got two ports on there. And it's about the same size, weight, and cost as two fill and drain valves. And that's very much on purpose. So a satellite can replace its fill and drain valves with the rafty port, and then they get the extra benefit of being refuelable in orbit. Uh, we also looked at uh, and currently have a project to develop automated fueling on the ground. So if you're launching a constellation of satellites, you might have dozens or you know, eventually maybe hundreds of satellites on a rocket going to every single one of them, plugging in your system, verifying that it's that it's leak proof, uh, putting fuel into that satellite, checking that it's it's safe to, to unmate. It's a very manual process right now to fuel each satellite. If you can automate that using our you know, robotic active side of the uh, of the fueling interface which you know, we need in space anyway, uh, if you can automate that on the ground, that can be a, a cost saver, that could be an advantage. And then you get the option of refueling in orbit. So as a fill drain valve, this becomes a, a no-brainer to start integrating into every satellite out there. And that's one way to, to smooth adoption and, and get the uptake of this happening faster. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really good synergies there. Um, so like what 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 do the valves look like on this thing? Like what what actually makes this product? Like could you even describe the shape of it? <laughs> yeah, the uh there are two parts to it. One is the the grapple fixture, so um, the the part that enables the mechanical docking. Because as I mentioned, that you don't need a robot arm to to do this. You directly dock uh, a refueling spacecraft, like a refueling shuttle, onto the fueling port. So it has it's an octagon shape, but only only four of those sides, effectively a square with the corners cut off, if you like. Um, but the four finger gripper grabs onto that octagon uh, and it shuffles down to provide a, a pretty good alignment of the um, the fueling valves, you know, the, the, the male and female side of those fueling ports. And then there's fine alignment features that 
further align, like on the face of each of those ports to further align it. And there's a little bit of, of give in those. There's a, a flexure type uh, attachment so that we can get perfect alignment when that's attached. So passively, it, it self-aligns. Uh, and that's important if you're if you're coming in and, and bumping up to a satellite with with another satellite. You want a wide capture box, and then you want it to self-align to provide that transfer. So the mechanical features of the grapple housing uh, allow for that, and then the fluid cores are interchangeable uh, because there are different materials compatibility uh, issues with different propellants. We have to be able to change out. Uh, if we're running hydrazine or hydrogen peroxide or water, and water is, of course, fairly tolerant of lots of things, um, but if you're running a high-pressure gas uh, and things like that. And so we can change all those out. Uh, one thing we haven't done, Rafti is not designed for use with cryogenic propellants. So we focus very much on storable propellants that satellites use because they spend years in space. Right? Cryogenic propellants kept at, uh, at very, very low temperatures, they tend to boil off. And that's a, a very different challenge. So the Rafti port is designed for for a huge range of storable propellants. Um, so I sat up in my chair when you said flexure. Uh, we love flexures on this show. Could, could you describe a little more uh, where those flexures are and what goal they're accomplishing? Yeah, it's uh, the, the goal is to align the fueling ports precisely enough that a, a reliable seal is going to be made every time that it mates and, and it should mate you know, dozens, hundreds of times um, or have the capacity to. And so that's what we have to do. You, you want to make sure that the, the valve cores are aligned both in sort of X and Y, but also in the rotations uh, around those axes and rotation around Z. So it has to be floating in, in some ways. And you know, I, I love what the engineers did on that. It, it, it looks amazing. It works really well. It's incredibly simple. It's, it's incredibly reliable. So you've got the, the four claws on grip that grab the four recesses, those cutoff corners. Um, and then I'm assuming those retract to bring the, the faces of the valves closer together. And then I guess what you're saying is that on the active side, you've got a little bit of float. So there's some sort of indexing that happens and allows some extra movement to get the active side of the valves or the, the active valves to, to finish that alignment and kind of slot into place. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. That's, that's exactly what's happening. And then did you need any, I think you said that you had a further alignment uh, level under that, right? Like if the, the rendezvous operation is like the first alignment where we're just looking at the other spacecraft and making sure we're, you know, roughly aligned and then the claws are the second level. Okay. Now we're not only mechanically connected, but we kind of slot in there and we get, um, a little more precision. And then those flexures are providing a, a level below that. W was there one more that you mentioned? No, that's that's it. I think you, you've got it. So the the claws in those recesses shuffle it down, and then and then it's clamped tight. But the the face of the two uh, fluid cores also it's it's like another little cup and cone uh, alignment, and so that shuffles down even more precise uh, to make sure the alignment's well within what we need. To, yeah. to make a good seal. That's very cool. And um, what did you what did you end up doing to to make that seal? I, I don't know if that's um, something you can talk about or not. But like you you mentioned all the different things that you had tried and discarded. Like 
what ended up working? Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique geometry. Um, we haven't patented yet, so I can't describe it in sufficient detail. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we combined a number of tricks that, uh, that we sort of developed in, in prototyping and testing on this. We'll, we'll have that out soon. That might be a good time to ask a question I had, and it could be that I don't fully understand how in-orbit propellant loading would work. As I do understand it, there's more than the solution that you make your connection, you dock, you seal, and that's obviously challenging on its own. But then is there also issues that are that you face with while the, the transfer is happening to kind of maintain the, I guess, client spacecraft's attitude to make sure it doesn't go into a tumble or anything like that? And if, if, if that is a part of uh, the challenge of in-orbit propellant loading, how do you kind of universalize that? side of it. Adam, do you want to take this one for a minute? No, that's exactly right. When you bring two objects together, you have the docking between them. And the re- the high level answer is you do this just very slow and very carefully. You approach the other vehicle in a very controlled way. Um, so you have on, our, uh, on a fuel shuttle, we have grip, the grabbing uh, side, facing a rafty. And so we're we're doing that initial alignment and in space we're setting up so that the rotation is exactly the same that we're coming in directly at the other spacecraft uh, but this is all done over not over seconds but over over time here of a slow maneuver um, and then we have stopping points we get close um, uh, we haven't we haven't uh, fully uh, baked in all these stopping points but think of them as stopping at 10 meters and then one meter and then getting to the point where you're grabbing on to the client spacecraft. Um, you do that grapple and you hold on and that uh, interface is uh, not really pushing the two vehicles into something uh, you described, you asked, how do you stop a spin? So um, the answer is those two are, those two vehicles are under control um, and then they dock and they're pretty quiet at that point. At that point, you're um, making sure the valve is aligned and the seals are made. And so then uh, you transfer fuel and you, you're doing that mostly through the center of gravity of a spacecraft. Um, if you're um, inducing any change, any turns, uh, the attitude control system uh, can uh, handle that and, and keep the uh, two spacecraft aligned. Okay. Cool. That, that makes sense. I, I like that the answer is carefully. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a good, it's a good answer. I'm not dinging you. I'm just like, you do it carefully. No, that's right. That's yeah, true. yeah. I think uh, even terrestrial here on Earth, if you had uh, fuel transfer, everybody would align towards safety and being careful about it. So uh, it's an important part of the business. So maybe it's a good time to talk about implementation, kind of springing off of Dennis's question. And Adam, this is where we, I think we start getting more into your uh, realm of expertise. When is your first uh, hardware flying? Who are your first clients? I mean, spoiler alert, you you have people who have bought fuel from you on orbit, which is fantastic. What is the what does the future look like and and how do we actually like what what are we actually gonna see for customers actually consuming your your on orbit product? Daniel described already kind of the missions we've done on International Space Station and getting Rafty on orbit. Uh, those were super important to us as a as a company uh, doing those things, uh, in the recent um, in the recent year, we have also won uh, U.S. government contracts. Uh, 
one with uh, the Air Force Research Lab and the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, and the other with uh, the Defense Innovation Unit. And those contracts are with uh, Space Force and uh, looking to do refuelings with their programs. And so the Space Force has included Rafti on a couple a couple Space Force. Uh, well, there's three satellites in the program called Tetra. Um, and then there's uh, other other spacecraft that they're looking to include Rafti on. But the Tetra program in particular, we have a on the active side, the refueling uh, uh, delivery vehicle going to space. And that's currently scheduled for 2025. Uh, so we're looking to do a refueling with those spacecraft have a mission. They're going to uh, do inspection and maneuvers on orbit. Um, and they're using fuel to do that. And so they'll come to our our depot, our refueling depot, and they have a rafty on them. So uh, our grip will grab that rafty, do the refueling operation in space. And so one of the benefits of working with Space Force, uh, they have many experts that look at all aspects of everything from the valve to the operations to uh, how we do the on-orbit concept of operations, the the different uh, parts of bringing two vehicles together and have, offer their expertise. So it's it's really nice to work with them and uh, get the advantage of uh, their questions and their backgrounds and and thinking about the problem and and solving it uh, in the best way we can. So uh, I guess that's a long answer to say uh, we're looking forward to a refueling in uh, 2025 uh, between what will be our grip uh, active mechanism and the rafty refueling port on a client spacecraft. Um, one of the questions I had actually was, who did you first ship uh, a rafty to? Was it Space Systems Command or was it Astroscale, who I think also... Uh, have a contract yeah, with you. That's right. Um, so uh, Astroscale is looking to launch uh, their their vehicle a little later than the Tetra vehicle we understand currently. So we're um, delivering to Space Force first in that instance. Um, but we also have other companies that we're working with that um, and, and Rafti ships uh, usually to a spacecraft manufacturer because integrated into the spacecraft in the tank. And uh, we have other instances where we're working with propulsion companies where uh, oh, cool. a propulsion company makes a tank and a thruster pack and um, we directly integrate Rafty with their system. And so there's a number of different ways where either the operator of a mission can buy Rafty and we can get it to their satellite manufacturer or we can work directly with the satellite manufacturer or propulsion company to get uh, rafties on board. So what is the vehicle that will actually be doing the tanking uh, specifically for Tetra? Yeah. So Tetra, uh, we have, so it's an orbit fab uh, docking depot uh, that uh, is in uh, geosynchronous orbit. So that's where the Tetra vehicle is. So it's an orbit, orbit fab vehicle that uh, uh, we'll do the refueling. And so that will be the active side. So we have the fluid transfer, the uh, grip, the grappling and uh, docking. So if you have creative names for when we go on orbit and it's a space <laughs> mission, we're, uh, uh, we're looking for that. But uh, uh, we, have a, we have internal names for it, but it's uh, uh, at the end of the day, it's a docking depot that we've uh, contracted with uh, US Space Force. Right. And so, so for 
uh, SSCs, Tetra, you're putting up a depot and Tetra is coming to you. And then for Astroscale, you're kind of doing the same thing. Uh, Astroscale's uh, Lexi vehicle is um, sort of like uh, Northrop Grumman's MEV2, which we were very excited to see. They dock and they do pointing and things. Um, but then you guys are also planning on building uh, some shuttles to go and move fuel from depots to clients. Can you tell us more about your shuttle? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so first stage for us is getting rafty vehicles on vehicles. It allows them to be uh, satellites. It gets, allows them to be refueled. Um, and then our 2025 mission is a, a docking depot, as you described uh the Tetra vehicles come to us and uh, we deliver fuel to them. Uh, so there are different classes of satellites, of course, in orbit. Some of them have maneuver capability. Some can maneuver to a, uh, a fuel depot. Uh, some, uh, like a communication satellite or other satellite, want a fuel shuttle to deliver the fuel to them. Uh, so like you said, so the uh, the Lexi spacecraft in particular with Astroscale has uh, wants fuel delivered to it, but it will be in a similar orbit. It'll be in the geosynchronous orbit. It's uh, doing life extension, but these clients that, so the satellite servicing industry is, is really an exciting area that we are supportive of a lot of different ideas. So there's life extension, uh, there's debris removal, uh, there's uh, companies that are thinking of doing assembly and manufacturing on orbit. We sort of focus on they all need fuel. And a lot of those missions, if you're debris removal or life extension, you want to uh, put your satellite in orbit and do that extension or debris removal. Um, and then we can refill their fuel tanks. If we uh, refill it, uh, then they have the opportunity to do a second or third or fourth mission. And we change the space economy to being throwing away satellites to satellites that can be reused. And um, there's a lot of value that is still on orbit, even after a spacecraft runs out of fuel. And uh, we're working together with those companies that are doing a lot of those things. Yeah, that's very cool. It's I, I like seeing where the edge of these plans are right like you have uh rafty ready to go you have um your depot that you're working on and then like the shuttle it's in mind and it's gonna you know it's gonna happen but you're not exactly sure what it's gonna look like and it's kind of just a little more nebulous out in the future and something about that edge makes me really excited like the edge where plans change is fun yeah so you know we're at a really exciting time in the space industry nasa's talking about artemis and going back to the moon and while that's some years off that's really exciting about where this technology type things can go um, there are low earth orbit space stations and so while we've delivered water to the iss uh, we also want to deliver fuel and propellant and um, but but that could also be commodities uh, as more and more humans go to orbit. Those those are some exciting kind of things that we think are coming in the future. And I would say the nice the nice thing about the last five years as OrbitFab has existed, um, there there were probably seven or eight companies that were working on the uh, tow trucks or the uh, debris removal or tugs and life extension. Uh, now we see about we see more than 200 companies out there uh, working on these things, and each one has their differences, and that's that's actually really exciting to us because that's um, 
uh, that's a different space economy than we have seen. Um, and those differences will make us all learn what is what is what are the better ways to do the business in space. So is this servicing for spacecraft primarily geostationary orbit or are there other orbits that you might be looking at? Because then you get into problems with inclination and how do you service a satellite sure. that's not in the same inclination? So our first orbital mechanics question on the orbital mechanics of <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so uh, we look at where satellites are typically at. In the geosynchronous belt is... Um, obviously a lot of communication satellite, other things. Um, and so uh, that is where our first customer uh, with uh, Space Force is. But we also look at low Earth orbit. Um, and generally there are there are clumps of satellites. There are places where satellites tend to exist just to do their mission. And so the Earth observation satellites, whether they're weather or looking at our telescopes or other things that are looking at Earth, um, are in sun synchronous orbit and in low Earth orbit. And so we will have uh, fuel shuttles, fuel delivery in low Earth orbit sun sync and in uh, the geosynchronous belt. Uh, those are to start. Um, and we will go where the customers go, honestly. Um, other orbits that are uh, getting more and more attention are uh, where the space stations are. Uh, but, but there are also um, some thoughts around uh, going cislunar, going to the moon. And the further out you go, uh, it, it tends to use up fuel in the beginning. And so refueling is really interesting to some of those capabilities. But I would say geosynchronous and uh, sun-synchronous orbits are where uh, we start. So we were talking a little bit about, um, or you were talking a little bit about uh, competition with um with other companies and on the, the Rafti user guide, it mentions that it's an, an open standard. Um, how open are you planning on making Rafti? Yeah. So um, we, you know, our goal is that we want refueling to become a thing that is obvious to the industry. So getting Rafti out and putting it on every spacecraft, um, we're not trying to close Rafti so that, uh, somebody has to just come and buy from Warbit Fab. Um, so that's the goal. The goal is to get Rafti on every spacecraft um, and do that in the mo- the best way because to grow Orbit Fab, to grow our business, we want to have refueling happening in orbit. So we've talked to manufacturers uh, that uh, build component space components. And so uh, we've talked to them about manufacturing Rafti. We've talked to companies about including Rafti if if they're building many satellites, uh, multiple satellites, uh, including it as part of their uh, assembly line, um, those things. So uh, when we say open, we really mean we want to do whatever we can to make sure Rafti is on, uh, you know, uh, the, the 100% goal would be every spacecraft that flies has a Rafti on it so that it could be refueled. And whatever we can do to make that happen is is our goal have you considered um like open source certification i mean it's kind of extraneous for a lot of things but it seems like something that might draw some attention yeah we certainly have and um uh, part of that is putting together industry groups and and others to uh, come together we've sort of done that in the build of rafty um there are groups in the industry like uh confers um i don't know if you've talked to confers but um Confers is a group that was originally started by DARPA uh, to talk about satellite servicing standards. Um, 
And so OrbitFab is a part of Confers, uh, uh, very supportive of what they're doing. Um, they just put out a standard, and I can't remember whether it's ISO. I think it might have been an ISO standard, but it uh, was one of the standard bodies on fiducials. And fiducials are the, think of them as the QR code that um, cameras look at on a spacecraft and you can see orientation and things. So they uh, put that out as a standard and we've been talking to them about how to follow that methodology to use sort of Converse to create standards in this business because there are likely to be standards around um, refueling, but also power and data and other parts of the industry. And so uh, we're talking to a lot of companies about how to do that best. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like Ericsson and the Bluetooth standard, which Ericsson invented and then they made it wide open. And wouldn't you know it, I'm using Bluetooth headphones right now. Like I I don't have, yeah, like I don't have any Ericsson products in my house, uh, but they made that impact. Do you have like a guide star that you're following to try to, are you trying to do the Ericsson thing or is there another company that you've got in mind? You know, I think, so the main difference here industry-wise is the space industry um, is not the com- consumer electronics industry. So <laughs> sure. it's, um, it's it's a little different in the sense that um, uh, Rafty is usually going to be purchased by an aerospace engineer, a fluids uh, engineer, and things like that. And so there are some differences when you get into this industry, but um, those those models are all applicable. Those um, how to uh, how to open this standard and make it so that anybody can use it is is really what we want to go for. So can you clarify a distinction that maybe I'm not making? <laughs> so you're talking about open standard, but that's not to say that the hardware itself is open source, is it? Because as I understand it, you you are perhaps like patenting something, right? Yeah. So um, there, there will be patents around techniques and things like that. And so uh, we want to ensure th- there's a couple aspects where licenses will come into, a, into play, um, mainly around quality control. Uh, but there's also in our industry, the ITAR regulations. And so... Um, when you get into space components, you have to work through the State Department when you're um, going international. And so uh, there are some aspects of uh, in-space docking and refueling that um, will have to be controlled through those different regimes. But we're, we're working all those aspects because, you know, a good, for instance, on, on the ITAR list is satellite grappling and docking, except for the International Space Station, um, in our case, uh, we're doing grappling and docking between two parties who are cooperative, who uh, know this operation, are being transparent about this operation. Um, and so that that's not really the purpose of why that ITAR regulation was written. That was for um, technologies for uh, grappling and docking that might be for uh, military uses. And so... Uh, we have to work through all that. Uh, we have to work through the regulatory side as well as being uh, safe and reliable on re- on refueling. And so there's different levels of putting out the standard and uh, having industry comment on it and having it adopted is in having it on every spacecraft is really what changes this industry. Um, did you consider adopting another standard 
um, rather than writing your own? I guess the direct answer is no, because nothing really exists like Grafty um, that that we're aware of. There were there are obviously fill and drain valves for spacecraft, and there are um, other efforts that were. Uh, purpose built for their refuelings. And so uh, Rafty is the first project we know of that's really built so that uh, anybody can be refueled, that uh, a fuel shuttle can come and dock and uh, deliver fuel. So it's it's a little unique in that aspect. Yeah. The only other thing that comes to mind is um, Lockheed Martin has MAP and it, it has, I've actually modeled uh, the map interface because it's really pretty and I want to 3D print it. But um, nice. map map has got a rectangle cutout that says like, here's where you put electrical and fluid stuff. And like, that's all. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, okay. there's, there's, a, there's a number of developments around uh, docking, right? So um, a number of companies have uh, docking plates or docking mechanisms. Um, we work with those companies to say, how, how could you incorporate Rafty into those mechanisms? So, um, so, so another part of being open with Rafty is um, you, you don't just have to include Rafty. You can include it within a broader system architecture like, um, like the Lockheed Martin interface or others. I described before how Rafty is designed to be the primary docking interface as well, but that doesn't mean that it can't be used as a secondary docking interface. So if you're already docked, uh, you could have something at the end of a robot arm that also attaches uh, a Rafty and a grip interface together. I can't wait to see how this plays out. Like what is, what is the industry going to decide? Because, you know, history shows us, we're probably going to have a bunch of different standards and some are probably going to be good at some things and some are going to be good at other things. But like we're getting into the point where things are, are really exciting, but we're on the tipping point of them becoming boring because we just, it's normal. And like, we just do it. And that's very cool to me. Like once it becomes pedestrian to dock to spacecraft, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Okay, so we're getting towards uh, the end of the interview. So we have two final questions that we ask every guest. The penultimate one is, where would you like to be found on the internet? All right, you can find us on our, our website, orbitfab.com. Um, LinkedIn for Adam and I uh, will also be in the notes uh, on this recording, I believe. Uh, and of course, we are trying to find great people. So if you want to work for OrbitFab, if you want to build the future, of satellite refueling and the infrastructure for everything that's going to be built in orbit. Look us up. Yeah, easy to find us on our website. Um, also, you you have uh, Adam and my LinkedIn and the company LinkedIn. Um, I understand you'll put those down in the uh, in the comments and description on the podcast. And if anyone's interested in in hiring, please do look us up there. And the final question: um, What is the smallest question within commercial spaceflight to which you have not been able to find the answer? To me, the smallest question would be: What space company is going to have the highest return on investment over the next two years? Great. I think that's an excellent oh, question. I was I was going to phrase that differently, Adam. I was going to say: uh, What's going to be the first space company to make a billion dollars using fuel on orbit? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for the time that you took out of your busy weeks to talk to us. This was a lot of fun. Best of luck uh, delivering fuel. It's it's an exciting future. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great to be here. 
So, moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have uh, a sad trombone sound effect. <laughs> so we have no winners. That's one less than what I had, right? And one more than what Dennis had, or equal to what Dennis had. <laughs> yeah, I was say. Well, you know what? We I think we can safely say that the Greek won this, um, because like odds are the Greek would have guessed correctly anyway. Like, you know, their their name comes up all the time. But uh, this event actually was suggested by the Greek uh, way back in episode three thirty two. So exactly a hundred episodes ago. And we're bringing it back this week. Um, So uh, credit to the Greek for finding this week in spaceflight history event. And what is that event? Right. This week in spaceflight history is the 4th of November, 2011. It was the end of the Mars 500 experiment. Um, And so back 100 episodes ago, I can't believe that it worked out so well. Uh, Back 100 episodes ago, there was a clue uh, for the actual event, which was Phobos Grunt and the Greek guessed this instead. Uh, And I was like, well, it's too good of an event to just like say, no, you got it wrong and move on. Um, So Mars 500 was a psychosocial uh, isolation experiment that took place at the Russian Institute for Biomedical Problems in Moscow. Uh, Mars 500 operated uh, with three different crews, three different experiments from uh, 2007 to 2011. This mission that we're talking about was the final mission. It was a 520-day quote-unquote crewed mission to Mars. Quote-unquote on board. I just... I think it's so funny, like <laughs> the idea that nobody's actually going anywhere, but like we can use all this language like crew and on board. Uh, on board were six people. There were three Russians and then one person each from France, Italy, and China. Their facility was hermetically sealed and it simulated um, a small Earth Mars transfer vehicle. No, it simulated a very large Earth Mars transfer vehicle. Um, then it had a small ascent descent craft, which is like one little room. Um, the, the transfer vehicle was, I don't know, like three or four modules. depends on how you cut it up. But, um, those are like, you can think of them as being on one side. And then in the middle is the ascent descent craft, which is kind of small. And then off to the side, it's actually like all these are kind of parallel to each other, but then on, on the other side, um, schematically speaking, is actually a model of the surface of Mars. Not the whole surface. It's, I don't know, maybe uh, 50 by 300 feet, something like that. Um, but it's like, you know, a dome. It's actually like the largest section of the whole thing. Oh, and I put in the notes, also presumably this uh, facility featured considerably better toilets than you would find on a spacecraft. I can only I can only assume that that's true because <laughs> toilets in space suck. They had a couple of different facilities. They had a greenhouse. Uh, I don't I think they supplied food uh, through more means in the greenhouse. Uh, but they had a greenhouse. They had uh, a gym and they had a medical and psychological lab. Uh, for doing presumably low, you know, responding to low grade medical issues. And they also did a bunch of testing like this whole time, uh, these whole uh, 520 days, they're like doing tests over and over and over. I can't imagine how boring it was. So this final experiment uh, simulated 250 days of going from Earth to Mars. Then they landed and then they spent 30 days on the surface 
and they spent 240 days coming back. What are the actual numbers for a round trip to Mars? Because like, it's not 30 days on the surface, is it? Like to actually make the return window, it's either like a week or a year. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on, there's some, uh, what would you call them? There's some concepts out there that can get there, you know, faster than others. And so, yeah. And if you've got sustained thrust, sure. So they, as they're going to Mars, doing their mission and coming back, they're moving back and forth between these modules um, to simulate the different stages. So like for the 30 days that they are on Mars, they're in a much smaller compartment, um, but they also get to don uh, spacesuits and go walk around in the uh, the Mars habitat area. So the the data that came out of this, I didn't dig into any studies. Maybe, maybe I could have uh, found some, but I, just going off of the summaries that I found, uh, four out of the six participants, a- astronauts, had, quote, considerable problem sleeping. Uh, and along with that, increased sleep and restorations. All six of them experienced disrupted circadian rhythm, and one crew member suffered chronic sleep deprivation, and that one crew member accounted for the majority of the mistakes on one particular computer test that they have uh, that measures concentration and alertness. And like that, that sounds miserable. <laughs> <laughs> like 500 days of getting almost no sleep is just, I mean, it sounds like torture. Despite all this, they still managed to take a very credible uh, microgravity photo uh, for April 1st, uh, April Fool's. And we'll put in the show notes, it looks really, really good. Um, The positions are all pretty darn natural. And like, if you zoom in, there's some blurriness but like blurriness is hard to Photoshop and they've done a very, very good job. There's no uh, like motion blur or anything like th- this is a very, very good Photoshop. And I, I don't know how they I mean, they, they had computers, I guess <laughs> somebody <laughs> brought a copy of uh, a Photoshop along. So the whole time that they were quote unquote up there, I got to stop doing this. The whole time that they were doing this experiment, they were able to communicate with the the ground controllers and to post photos on uh, social media. I think the photos on social media went through their media teams, but they had uh, a delayed communication setup where it took the appropriate amount of time uh, to reach earth and then go back to the spacecraft um, and you know, the isolation has got to be tough, uh, living with five other people who were recruited and aren't necessarily your best friends. That sounds really horrible, but I gotta say, I, I think that time delay might be one of the hardest parts about this mission when I think about it. Um, or at least it's something I can't discount. Cause like that means no phone calls, no video chats. I mean, it was 2011, no video chats anyway, but, uh, yeah, just this must have been so tough. Um, so the clue this week was uh, warning, removing the sticker will void your experiment. And I picked this clue because there's this lovely little detail. Um, during the exit ceremony way back in November of 2011, uh, before they turned the giant handle to to open this big sealed door, uh, they pulled open a literal wax seal that they had strung across the door. So there's a lump of wax on the door, a lump of wax on the door sill. I mean, it's, you know, around like pressure seal kind of door. Um, but there's like a string 
embedded in the, in the wax and they yank it off. Um, and like, I kind of suspect that that seal was added two days before the press showed up. Um, (laughs) but I don't know, maybe it was on there the whole time and it just was to prove, I don't know what you're proving. Um, but yeah, uh, I thought that was a fun little detail. Uh, I should be able to put a gif of this, uh, of this seal being torn open in the show notes for you. All right, so that is This Week in Spaceflight History. All right, uh, that's an interesting This Week in Spaceflight History. I can kind of see why nobody guessed, because it didn't even take place in space. Yeah, and it, well, and it also wasn't a great clue, and I knew it. Well, let's hope Dennis can do better. So, yeah, the date range for the next event is the 7th through the 13th of November. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1995, mission extension of 4.7 meters. There's a very specific number in there. That should help. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a, the subject of a spam email I received last week. Of 4.7 meters, really? That's that's a bold claim. <laughs> hey, man, it's spam. <laughs> Got to catch your attention somehow. So if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, uh, just give us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweekSF. Um, and right now, we only check federated toots on botsin.space and spacey.space, but you can always mention at orbital at botsin.space. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and type slash TWSF and hand your guest directly to our Tombot. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. Um, and Dennis, what is the first uh, space flight event? Yeah, first up, we have a spacewalk we've mentioned a few times now, but uh, now it might really be happening on November 1st. And so this is U.S. Spacewalk 89 with uh, Jasmine Mogbelli and Laurel O'Hara. And so specifically, what this one will be doing is to remove uh, radio frequency group hardware and replace a trundle bearing assembly on the port truss. And NASA TV will begin coverage of it again on Wednesday, November 1st at 6.30 a.m. Eastern with the spacewalk expected to begin at approximately 8.05 a.m. Eastern and last approximately six and a half hours. So after that is a Spaceship 2 launch. Um, The uh, official like PR blog post um, says that the window opens November 2nd. Uh, of course, that is going to be like North American November 2nd, and I'm not sure if they're going to be launching right on November 2nd or a little bit later. It's worth mentioning, though. Uh, this is their fifth commercial uh, mission. Like, holy crap, they're actually <laughs> they're actually doing what they said they were going to do. I'm totally shocked, but it's called uh, Galactico 5, and I don't know if they have more specific fun names, but uh, keep an eye out for that one starting on the second. Then after that, we have a Falcon 9 launch, um, and this is another Starlink launch, 626. I think it's the only one we have for this week, surprisingly. Yeah, right. And the uh, liftoff time for that will be 2248 UTC through 0319 UTC, and it's launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. So, yep, check out that one. I guess you're only... Uh, Starlink launch this week. And then finally, we have some more NASA TV coverage, this time of a launch. And so uh, depending on where you are on November 5th or 6th, we've got Falcon 9, uh, Dragon CRS-2 or SpaceX-29 uh, uh, cargo mission uh, to uh, orbit. And so this one will be taking all sorts of goodies, uh, supplies and play- payload, um, experiments, you know, the kind of good stuff that they have. And so this is the second... This one is going to be a flight under the second uh, CRS contract. So that's why there's that CRS-2 in the name of the mission. 
So, uh, as expected, this Falcon 9 would fly out of the Cape, uh, Launch Complex 39A, uh, with an instantaneous launch uh, at 0301 UTC, uh, November 6th, 0301 UTC. Um, so that's going to be November 5th for a lot of people uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Now, NASA TV has the coverage for it. A few days later, on November 7th, uh, coverage of the docking of the spacecraft to the ISS. And so uh, that coverage will begin at 3.30 a.m. Eastern, with the docking itself scheduled for 5.05 a.m. also Eastern. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to do with the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Vax Edroom, Colin, Chris S., Delta V, and Dink NASA Memes for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.